from uh, former Liberal MP, current ultra-marathoner, uh, and Australian extraordinaire Pat Farmer in conversation with Jora Newman. I'd like to acknowledge a number of great contributors to uh, Australia's journey of reconciliation. Uh, we have here this evening Rob DiCostello, the founder of the Indigenous Marathon Foundation. Uh, We, I'd also like to acknowledge uh, my friend and co colleague uh, Dave Smith uh, to re recognise Dick Telford uh, and to thank all of you for being part of tonight's conversation. Uh, tonight will be quite informal. We've got uh, Jora Newman who is uh, a graduate of the Indigenous Marathon, Marathon Foundation, uh, an uh, uh, extraordinary runner and uh, Indigenous leader in her own right uh, in conversation with Pat. Uh, that'll be the first 40, 45 minutes or so. Uh, then we'll throw open for questions from the audience. So if you've got a question for Pat, whether it's about grit or blisters or reconciliation, uh, be thinking of that and we'll open up to the floor. Uh, so now uh, uh, that's my bit done and please uh, put your hands together and welcome Pat and Joira to the stage. Hello? No, I think ladies first. Ladies first? Okay. <laughs> all right. So thank you all for coming. Um, I'd like to pay my respects um, as well to the Ngunnawal Ngambri people on where we're gathering today. Um, and I'd like to also extend that sort of respect and thank you to all mob that's in the crowd. Um, Faith up the back there. <laughs> um, and I'd like to also, if we can, just give Andrew a clap and just acknowledge him too because quite often it's hard, I think, to do acknowledgement, but he actually really said it from his heart just now and he used the traditional language, which I think is really important. So for anyone, I think that is non-Aboriginal or non-Torres Strait, that really takes the conscious effort to acknowledge country properly and then says it and feels it into the crowd, I think takes really good consciousness and efforts. So please thank him too. <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to introduce myself now quickly. Um, just as Andrew said, um, my name is Joya and I started with the Indigenous Marathon Foundation with Uncle Rob here back in 2021. So I was new to running, long distance running, back in 21. Um, and I've stayed with the foundation as a volunteer and runner since. Um, they've taken me to places that I think uh, is also really important for Mob to see, in that you get to travel around the world and you get to do some running in that sort of time as well. Um, where I grew up, Pat, is in Bamaga, so it's in Cape York. So not too sure if you've actually been up that way. You have? I have. Okay, 
So that place is actually for Angamuti people. That's a place belongs to where Maaka was born. So my grandmother was born in Injinu. And that place is occupied by five different tribes, Aboriginal tribes. And so I was born Lotiai, which we call Waiben. And that is uh, language of the Torres Strait people there, Aboriginal people there. And you could only go there because there's no hospital in the NPA where I was born. Um, so I'm actually one of so many children. My dad has got 14 brothers and sisters. My mom has 10 brothers and sisters. And so you're in this community, this really remote community, really far away from where we are. Um, it's a beautiful little place. Um, and for a lot of the reasons I choose to run, I actually pick my home first. I pick my community, I pick my family. That's who I feel most passionate about usually. And consciously that's what I always have in my head. Um, I'm really proud of that. My heritage is actually both east and west, uh, Torres Strait. So I'm from the Mogol tribe, which is in Erub. So that's where Darnley Island is, that's the English word. And then I'm also from Badu, Argan tribe, which is my mother's mother's people. They speak Kalolagaya. That's like a deep, really old language. And that's the one I can speak usually with my grandparents. But at the time, we had to move to Bamiga. We had to live there because the laws at the time, you had to move quite a bit. Well, on my mother's side, I'm actually an Aboriginal woman. And my tribe is from the Wulgurukuba people, Law Townsville area. Not too sure if you've run through there yet. Yes. You have? Yes. Oh, good. You can tell the crowd now what, what you felt about that place. Yeah, yes. uh, well, yeah, well, I will. I, uh, I will do. It's interesting that you mentioned Bamaga because I'll um, I'll speak about a little bit about all of my travels through the top end of Australia in a little while. But my mem my memories of of Bamaga and of course going across the Wenlock River and the Jardine River and a number of those places many years ago was um, just coming up very late at night waiting for the tide to go down so that I could cross because I had this silly thing in my head that if it wasn't the if it wasn't the Pacific Ocean or Bass Strait then I was going to um, cross by foot uh, and I remember we camped on the side we camped on the side of the river there <coughs> we were waiting for the tide to go out and the river to drop slightly this is the Wenlock uh, and um, I said to one of my crews what are all those those things over there we shone the light and they were all crocodile eyes. All these crocodile eyes. So, uh, you know, anxiously we waited for the tide to go down and down and down, the water to go down enough. And then in the end, what happened was the four wheel drive went across in front of me and I followed very hurriedly behind the, the four wheel drive and got across and out the other side. And I think I broke the 100 meters in um, <laughs> record time, record time. But yeah, but I have very fond memories of up there but please continue as I'll, I'll say a few things but I'm just enjoying the fireside chat and I'm he enjoying hearing all about your hometown and I think it's so beautiful to hear people speak with passion about their country so please go on oh no thank you for sharing that crocodile story I think it's it's really nice because I could tell you this one time when we were young we used to um, in one of the communities we used to actually um, jump off the jetty into the water 
and then the old people uh, would say it's fine to swim, right? So we've got all these kids in the water. It's croc infested as well, by the way. And uh, the thing would be that people would think it's strange that the kids are in there. And then this one um, white person came up to this, this little child there and said, oh, it's scary, why are you in there? And then the child sort of looks to, to the white person and says, it's okay. If we see that they are not there, it's safe, you see? So that conceptually, what they're actually saying is it's good to see them, and then we swim. When we don't see them, we get out. So I think that's the magic of having shared something really culturally and spiritually, in that a lot of people where I'm from, they really respect the people, the land, the water. If it's theirs, you let it be theirs. Temporarily, you share it. And that's how the old people had always taught that story. And I actually could tell one in Injunu, which is where my grandmother was born, and that she could, in fact, have moments, one of the biggest crocodiles in Injunu, and that they would actually uh, be able to talk to one another in some instances, where she could go, fish, grab fish, when and finish, then it's the crocodile's turn to hunt and gather. So they had that shared responsibility in that particular water, which I don't think a lot of people understand when they see something significant like that. And if it could be taught, you know, there's that sense of respect of having been welcomed. And I think that was probably one of the questions that I could lead into for you, Pat, was that when you were going into a lot of the communities, the Aboriginal communities, were you actually welcomed by the people and, and, and the old people when you were running? Well, uh, thank you for that question because one of the things that astounded me the most was that they actually came looking for me on the road uh, and and you know, it, it warmed my heart. There's so many times uh, in the remote parts of Australia and not only on this occasion, on this particular run, but on other events that I've done, uh, and but in particular with this one now, um, where I've had a vehicle pull up and some of the local people from there come out, wrap their arms around me and say, thank you so much for what you're doing for my people. Uh, and it's almost brought me to tears because I'm listening to the media and the media are saying, oh, look, the Indigenous people of, of Australia don't want this. They don't want this. And they're, they're saying, no, you know, they're against it, etc., etc." Well, that's not what I'm seeing on the ground. That's not what I'm feeling on the ground. Uh, for a few of the communities that I've gone into and, and uh, you know, when I've started a conversation with them, they've said, well, you know what? We've been let down so many times that we're just frustrated and, w and, and you know, what will be will be and, and we don't really care about a yes or a no vote. And then, uh, you know, you can't, blame, you can't blame these people for feeling that way when, you know, for year after year, decade after decade, even over the last 200 years, they've been so disappointed with the influx of people from other parts of the world and the way they've been treated and then on top of that the way that they've been let down so many many times but um i'll speak a bit more about that but I, I still want to talk about crocodiles for a minute so so if i can you know one of the things i found with the kids uh in some of the communities is is they told me that they jump into the water and they go down and they see the freshies, the freshwater crocodiles on the bottom. 
and they grab them on the tail and they hang on to their tail and when they do they take off because the freshwater crocodiles are lying on the bottom and they take off and when they take off they take them for a ride now uh, a freshwater crocodile and a saltwater crocodile they still look pretty mean to me tell me have you ever done that which community is that one? Oh, that w that was that was up the top that was up near hope town yeah, far north. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so where did you actually start? Oh, no, so that no, that was up in far north, uh, up in Queensland, up top end of Queensland. In Hopevale. Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Hopevale. Sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay, that's that's pretty cool. I love that story. Have um, you ever done that? No, I would never do that. No. <laughs> never do Thank. That. I'm not sure whether I'm pulling my leg or not, but they seem pretty serious about them. They're only little kids, so I reckon I would try anything. Yeah, no, I think they're really taking you for a ride, not the <laughs> Fair enough. They're always trying to trick anyone that doesn't look the fa like part of the community, you know, um, well. just to see a response. Um, I was impressed. Yeah, well, good. Um, do you think that actually, why did you start running around? Uh, why, why, why are you doing this actually? Let's just get to that. Well, well thanks so much. Well, for, well then I, s I suppose I might as well introduce myself. So, so um, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Pat Farmer. I've, uh, I was inspired by a fellow that you guys may remember a long time ago by the name of Cliff Young, who was known as the Gumboot Shuffler. I worked as a motor mechanic at a garage in Granville, which is the western suburbs of Sydney a long time ago. I, like so many kids, was told by the teachers and by everybody around I was never going to amount to anything, that I would never be anything. And so I left school at a very early age. I left school when I was 14, as soon as I could legally get out of there. Uh, and my father agreed that I could stay out of school so long as I got a job. And I got a job as a motor mechanic. And I, um, I worked there... Uh, way at this garage there for quite a while. I loved to figure out the way that things work and I loved working with my hands. I learned with my hands rather than re by reading books. And so consequently, I was, I was enjoying my job. And then my boss called me up from underneath the car one day and he said, Pat, come out onto the road. I want you to have a look at this. And I went out onto the side of Woodville Road at Granville and I saw all these elite runners racing on down the road. And they had legs on them like Rob DiCostello, like a racehorse. And they were racing on fast down the road. Uh, and they had their uniform on, the Westfield Run uniform on. Uh, and as they raced past, there was all this fanfare and police sirens and kids on the other side clapping and cheering them on. And I was impressed with that. And then, and then my boss turned to me and he said, see that? They're the Sydney to Melbourne ultramarathon runners. He said they will run day and night, night and day for, for you know, until they complete 1,000 kilometres. Uh, they are the toughest athletes on earth. And I looked at these people and I said, day and night, night and day. And he said, yes, until they make it to Melbourne. So I looked at these people and I thought, that's incredible. But they were so far removed from me that I couldn't relate to them. They were great athletes and I was just a kid and then one person ran past at the back of the field well he didn't even run past he just sort of shuffled on by and I said to my boss what what's that old fella doing wearing the same uniform as all the others he said that's Cliff Young he said he trains in gumboots on his hundred acre property down in Colac in Victoria and he said yes 
him too is part of the race. I said, you must be kidding. I said, if he makes it to the end of Woodville Road, I will eat my overalls. And as you would have it, not only did he make it to the end of Woodville Road, but that little old fella went on to take on the best in the world. He ran day and night, and while the others were sleeping, he was pushing on, and he went on to win that race. And I tell that story, one, because it's true and it ignited something inside my soul, but number two, because he was the most unlikely hero ever, uh, and he ran past where I worked. He didn't know I was there on the side of the road, and I didn't know anything about him, but I was inspired by his actions, not his words. And so because of that, I went on to take on the Sydney to Melbourne race myself, which I did uh, on four occasions. I went on to learn all about food, nutrition, running, etc., etc. I travelled the world, travelled in a state, ran from the top of Australia, Cape York Peninsula. I actually started on Thursday Island, but Cape York Peninsula all the way down to the southeast Cape of Tasmania for Diabetes Australia. I've run across the Simpson Desert and still hold the record for the Simpson Desert in summer as a result of that. Uh, I have run around Australia. This will be my second time. I have uh, I've run multiple events within Australia, even raced up and down Sydney Centrepoint Tower to set new world vertical records as well. I've raced in Lebanon, Jordan, Israel, Palestine. I've run the length of India from Kenya Kamari to Kashmir for girls' education. I've run the length of Vietnam to raise funds for clean water projects and clean sanitary conditions in Vietnam. I've run in Japan and China, and I've even run the North Pole, being dropped off by the Russian helicopters in the North Pole, dragged a sled out of there from there through to Canada, and then pushed my way from the United States, or from Canada all the way down to the United States, and then from there down to Mexico, and continued on from Guatemala, Nicaragua, El Salvador, Costa Rica, through the Darien jungle, out the other side through Colombia, Ecuador, and continued on all the way through Peru and then down to Ushuaia uh, before heading across, being flown across to the South Pole uh, and then working my way uh, from Hercules Inlet on into the South Pole covering nearly 20,000 kilometres. And the reason why I mention that story in my introduction and the reason why I mention all of those things is for two reasons. One, I left school at a very early age when everybody thought I was never going to amount to anything. Two, uh, I took up sport, the sport of running. A very simple sport where all you need is a pair of shoes and you just get out there and you do it. Uh, three, sport opened up the world for me and opened up educational possibilities and opportunities for me that I never would have believed. And as a result of that, as a result of running around Australia the last time that I did it, I, ended, I found myself with an invitation to go into politics. And being the sort of person that, that um, you know, thinks opportunities come along in this life, you either take them or you live on regrets, I accepted that opportunity and found myself as part of the Liberal Party under John Howard and, and ran for the seat of MacArthur and won it by the second biggest margin in the country that year and went on from there to serve nine years in federal parliament. And then, here's the crazy bit, I left school when I was 14 
out of all the portfolios the government could have given me to be, to do, they made me parliamentary secretary for education, science and training. This kid that left school when he was 14 years old. I was the dumbest guy in the whole of parliament and they made me a, a junior education minister. What does that tell you about the system we got in place? It's a popularity contest. That's what it tells me. And people don't necessarily end up in the right places that they're supposed to be. But I will justify my actions by saying this. I went on to study after I left school. I have a master's in business as a result of, uh, as a result of that study. But I have to say more than anything, I learned more from my sporting career and the opportunities and the doors that opened for me and more about places like your hometown, the rest of Australia and so many other people, the culture and so many other people, not just here but around the world, than I ever could have or would have through any other, any other job that could have ever been presented to me. So, with all of that, with all of that, I tell you that most importantly because as a result of cliff young's actions i was inspired i raised literally millions of dollars for worthy causes right around the world but more importantly than anything with all of that as my credentials i still see this run that i'm in the middle of at the moment that i still have more than four thousand kilometers to complete as been being the most significant and most important thing i have ever done in my life and I was talking with Dick Telford earlier on today, a man who has coached me for a bit and become a great friend as well. Uh, and he said to me, Pat, how are you feeling? And I said, I've never felt so good about my running ever before in my life. And the last time I ran around Australia was 24 years ago. And I'm stronger and faster than I was then. And I can't help but think that because it's the purpose I'm doing this for. And the difference between raising millions of dollars for worthy causes or doing exactly the same thing here in Australia for this particular instance is that there will always be those need in the communities for so many things around the world. But here we have a once in a lifetime, once in my lifetime opportunity to one, set the record straight, to two, make a difference and empower Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to take control of their own lives, their own situations, and to move on from there to a much better fulfilling life for the rest of their, for the rest of their lives, for their children, and for future generations. Never again will I ever have this opportunity. Never again will every Australian that is alive at this point in time have this opportunity again. We need to seize the opportunity. Thank you, Pat, for um, sharing so much honesty and your passion there. I think it's pretty wonderful that you have all this time to see the world and do all these wonderful things. Um, I wanted to quickly just check as to when you've been running throughout the, the country, are you actually then also having other conversations in the communities that, are you going, like that you're going to what are they essentially saying to you or asking you um, as to where you think this could really lead to? Because you can run around the country, sure, and you say it's for this cause and it's a wonderful thing. Are people actually responding in a positive way or in the way that you, you're seeing people 
um, sort of want to get to with what you're doing? You should be working for the ABC. <laughs> People are responding. People are responding. And that's, that's, the, that's the key. Not all the response is positive. So people are responding. And that's what my role is. That's what my job is, is to get out there and to make people think about the question that's at hand at this point in time. And to ask the questions that need to be asked so that they can come to the same, the same conclusion that many of the people here in this room are, are coming to. And that is that this is a good thing for our nation, for all of us. And so... You know, I've met with some. Pe I've met with people in some communities, some indigenous communities up there. In at, at the one, one in particular, uh, I had a couple of young people come out and run with me. And the mob. These are yep. people. Yeah, these are mob. Yeah, yeah. They're all actual people. <laughs> yeah, they're all actual people. And 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 they've come out with me and they've said to me, you know what? A lot of people think that we're that we're messy and that we're dirty in our communities. And they said, this is just the variation of, of things that I've been hit with. And they said, do you know, we don't, have, we don't have a garbage disposal service around here. We don't have anybody from the council bringing a truck around that we can throw our rubbish in and uh, we can take it to. We don't have anything like that. And, you know, it's all these, it's the little things that we take for granted in the cities. Like I was in New York one time and the, the garbage disposal system over there is run by the mafia. And whenever they want something from the, from the government, they simply stop picking up the rubbish. Once they stop picking up the rubbish, New York is just the stinkiest, most rat infested place on the planet. And that's, that's a big city. Now, that's what happens in a country like that because they have that sort of control. Imagine living in communities where you can't get simple services, basic simple services, like a local council trying to help you out with those sorts of things. Other things that I've been hit with is the fact that m many communities have like 18 people living in a two-bedroom home. And it's not even really a two-bedroom home. It's four walls with 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 one wall separating a bathroom area and that's it and you've got multiple generations within the same home you tell me anybody in the city or in or in the local suburbs or the or or just the outlying areas of a, of, of the cities that would tolerate that we're all complaining about a, a housing crisis let me tell you that there is just there is just nothing out there i i, I went to other communities where Government is, Halls Creek, classic example, they, government provided a TAFE college, which is four walls and a roof, but no teachers. And this is the way some of the systems work in this country is a lot of, a lot, the federal government will build buildings and then it's up to state government to supply the people to fill the buildings. But if you don't have teachers, all you've got is four walls and a roof. It's good for nothing. So, so we need people equity. We need people to be empowered. And what better people than the people that live in these communities themselves? Why aren't we, why, why aren't we teaching these people to be the teachers themselves? So I think with what you're sort of giving the crowd the example of and what you're learning, 
for me, that looks like discrimination, that looks like institutional discrimination, that looks like racism, they're actually the impacts of you know, genocide and slavery. So they're really important things to talk about and you should let non-Aboriginal people and non-Tostate people know that that's what racism is in community. But I would like to also think that when you're going to see these implications, this sense of racism, non-Aboriginal people and Tostate people, that you're actually finding time to sit with old people, young people, or mob, so that they teach you the very empowered bit of what we have. You see, we have language, we have food. There's a lot of things that we could actually teach non-Aboriginal people or non-Tostate people. So there's stories. There's things that have been passed down to me generationally through my language and hunt and gathering that I could teach a lot of non-Aboriginal people about, you see? So that's the bit where it is actually still living and alive. So I think when you're going, and if you're going to finish your last bit of your run, the thing that I think you could really look for is really being invited, Libational people and Tosho people, so that they teach you the essential bits, which is around culture, which is, which is around the moral compass, if not the value of people, you see? So you as a non-Aboriginal person or a non-Toshidana person, I would like to think that you could talk of all the wonderful things we have, the very spiritual things that I think non-Aboriginal people don't see or understand mm. unless they feel it, you see? So with your running, conceptually, it should be that you're running to learn from them and then you talk on the empowerment because we all know what constitutional racism look like around the world, if not here. That's why you're running for yes, you see? And so when you're saying help them teach or help to teach me what I need to teach, I already know quite a lot. I have a lot of cultural responsibilities, if not roles, to teach. This is a very small part of my life. If not, this is a side thing that I do to talk to you. I do multiple things because I'm a cultural woman. People don't know that, you see, but that's also not my job to teach that. I think it's for you as the very athlete that you are to learn as you go. So people sit like you teach you the food over the fire, so you talk of that. Because you can put that into the constitution around if people do say yes, and we get autonomy, if not recognition, then you can write spiritual things as to the autonomy was always there. It's just discrimination, if not racism. You know what I mean? That just block those things, like how the council can't just go and pick rubbish up. You see? And that's sort of what's happening in very remote parts of Australia. It does happen in the city, don't get me wrong. It does happen where there's this kind of perpetuousness of discriminative ways, if not institutional oppression, you see? I think that's easy to, to understand and see around the world, but I would really like to show and talk to everyone here about what it's really like for the empowerment, because it wasn't necessarily lost. Genocide just happened to block it, you see? if that makes sense. So I think now for like, Pat, you're talking about the last bit of your run. Could you tell everyone or the audience where those communities will be for you, the last bit of your running? So in as far as location's concerned? Yeah, your communities that you're going to finish. Yeah, so I'll, I'll obviously continue on my way down through to Melbourne. Yes, tomorrow on to Melbourne, then from Melbourne to Adelaide and from Adelaide heading on up into Finish it into Julu or into, into. Um, uh, so Mutajulu is your finish point. That's right. Yes. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. So. So, I suppose what I, um. Something. Let me let me just share something. So, okay. 
Yeah, um, so have it, has anybody here been to Broome? Yeah, okay. Have you been there when they have the festival on there? Uh, the 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 um the festival, the full moon festival. Yeah, okay. So let me tell you about one uh, just just one beautiful thing that I saw on this journey. And it was uh, up in Broome, they have tides, of course, that are um, six to eight metres at a time. So in, uh, if you can imagine a volume of water dropping by eight metres, it goes out an incredible long way. So at a certain time of the year or a certain time of the month when we have a full moon and you get the tide running out on that full moon, then it leaves all these ripples in the mud as it goes out and in the in the sand as it, as it heads on out, similar to the ripples that I've seen in the Simpson Desert when I've raced through there. And then when you look in the distance and you can see the water in the distance and you have the full moon, the moon the the full moon lights up these ripples and they call it stairway to heaven because it looks like it's actually an actual stairway that goes all the way through to heaven. So once again, the reason why I mentioned the reason why I mentioned this, and the reason why I, I mentioned some of the beauty of this land, is that you know Australians need to see these things. They need to see how incredibly beautiful this place is, but how diverse it can be. Because if I arrived there on a day when it wasn't a full moon, or I arrived there when it was a high tide and not a low tide, I wouldn't have a clue what anybody was talking about when they talk about this stairway to heaven. So we have so much to learn from people that have been here for thousands of years, not just somebody that showed up on a trip, on a day trip around the place and thinks that they've seen it all and know it all. So that combined with so many other different things, I, you talk about the, what I'm learning from the community. Well, there's something that's obvious as the nose on our face. Whenever we do a welcome to country and we say things like, you know, I'd like to acknowledge elders past, present and emerging. Uh, um, and I spoke about this earlier this morning, almost in jest, but absolutely true. And that is that we, you know, one thing that we can learn straight away is this respect for the elderly within, within the Indigenous community that we are tending to lose uh, in, uh, you know, any of us that come from a European background, we're tending to lose that. And so... As soon as somebody turns 50 or 60 years old, we want to stick them in a retirement village or put them in a nursing home and forget about them instead of, instead of truly respecting elders past, present and emerging and the value of knowledge that comes from all of that. Another point that I want to make is that, um, you know, the British culture, British, British laws, le legislation, uh, European laws, legislation, rules and regulations... Have, has been compiled over year after year after year, hundreds of years or thousands of years, been written down. It's been written down, it's been put together. And so we see this book of knowledge as being our laws, our legislation, our rules, our regulations. And so for that reason, in the early days, and I'm glad to see that this is changing, not just... Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here, but Indigenous communities right around the world have relied on dance, song, voice, 
to be able to relay messages and storytelling from one age, from one elder to the next child, to the next generation, and on and on and on. But because it's been translated by voice, we haven't put any gravity to that. We haven't put any, a, 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 any substance to that because we think it's just somebody telling somebody else some fanciful story that doesn't mean much to us. But when we dive into that and we look at all of these stories, we start to put the dots together and we start to understand that you can get the mud crabs at a certain time of year when the waddles are, when the waddles are out. And you can, you can find these things and you can find those things and you can, you can start to understand things in a calendar year that actually coincides with Mother Nature within this land that we're living in. And these are the things, as you mentioned earlier on, these are the things that I'm listening to and I'm hearing and I'm learning as I go through this journey, not just on this occasion, but on past occasions when I've been to the Tiwi Islands and numerous other places. I'm learning all of these messages because the most important thing that comes out of this for me and that I'm trying to pass on to everybody else is that just because something isn't written, just because it's not presented in a book, doesn't mean it's any less important. If it's your culture that's been passed down, it's important. And that's why spoken language is important to preserve. That's why all of these things that I mentioned about the moon being in the right place when the tide's out at the right time, people like Pat Dodson wrapping his arms around me and saying, welcome brother, because he can see in my eyes the burn on my face. He can see the, 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 the dust storms that I've been through, the, the fires and the smell, of the, the smell of the fires that I've run past that have been on the other side of the road. And this understanding that if we work with the land instead of against the land, if we accept Mother Nature and all that Australia has, we've, we've heard it in eloquent poetry from Co Colleen McCulloch and so many other people about this, this land of such diversity. But when you accept it instead of fighting it as this land Australia, and uh, when we open up our minds, our hearts and our ears, and we start listening to the traditional owners of this land, then we blend with it and we can live with it. You talk about stories along the way. Let me just say, mention two to this audience. One, it, well, well, one in particular. It was only in 1975. This is an important pertinent point, and this will be part of the whole storytelling process that ends up as a result of this in a later date. 1975 in Taree, the indigenous people weren't allowed over the bridge to, to go from Perfleet on into town. 1975, that wasn't that long ago. And it was enforced that they weren't allowed into that town. So all of these things have been happening in such a recent time. This, you talk about slavery, you talk about, you talk about the differences of culture and differences of people. It's right there in front of our eyes, but we haven't, we've turned a blind eye to it. Now we've got an opportunity for truth-telling, for listening, for opening up our ears, and then we can all move forward together. Then we can all move forward together once we know and we understand the mistakes of the past. That's what I think is going to be a great thing that will come out of The Voice. Thank you, Pat.
<coughs> that was, um, I'm actually really uh, sort of happy that you, to some degree, you know, get a hug by Pat Dodson in the way um, that you run and so forth. So when you were saying that, actually two things came to mind, if I can just um, say this quickly, is that to my first question, which was, as you get to Aboriginal communities or Toshiranda communities, yes, it's good to be welcomed in the way that you had received your hug because of all this treacherous sort of running that you did do. I think when we speak of welcome to country and you arrive at that place, that sacred place of somebody else, this is where it's important to talk of that an old person or a ceremony person must really welcome you to the place. You can't just essentially rock up. It doesn't work like that for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and its laws. You know, when someone welcome you, you must feel that welcome, you see? There's something powerful in that. And then that's how the knowledge gets passed on. I can't welcome you here because this is not my land. When you come home to the Cape York or to, to Townsville, if my old per people give me that, I will perhaps do that for you too, provided I've been given permission. And there's this sense of acknowledgement, which I think is an Australian thing, and people should do it, right? Because it's also you showing a sense of respect for having been here. And I also wanted to thank Andrew, because he really did take the time, you see? I don't think a lot of non-Aboriginal people, or Toshirana people, since I've been alive, I'm really young still, I don't really see that they're making that conscious effort. Not to say that everyone should speak an Aboriginal language to do welcome, but I really think it's important to hear the stories and then really take the time to learn. Because you can feel it like people when they're really here for the right reasons. If it's around this kind of, let's really do good for indigenous peoples and its, and its countries, you see?